Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. I am Leo Flowers. Today's guest is Stevon Lewis. He is a licensed psychotherapist, executive leadership advisor, speaker, author, and host of the podcast, How to Talk to High Achievers About Anything. When it comes to imposter syndrome, his work focuses on helping founders, co-founders, executives, creatives, and high-achieving entrepreneurs with understanding its origin. Welcome to the podcast, Stevon Lewis. What's up, brother? Thank you for having me, good sir. I appreciate it. Man, you know, this topic of imposter syndrome is something that I think a lot of people still aren't familiar with. They're not even, you know, aware that they might be struggling with this. Because I, I know that your focus is with high achievers, but this is something that a lot of people struggle with. I've even discovered, uh, just in preparing for this podcast, that people who are part of the LGBTQ community, they sometimes feel like imposters, like they're not queer enough. And then I was fascinated to find out that people, even in relationships, uh, feel like imposters within their own relationships. Uh, can you define for us for you, what is imposter syndrome? For sure, for sure. So like, as you were speaking, I'm nodding my head feverishly kind of in in uh, support of what you're saying. Uh, so for people that aren't aware, uh, and this is probably where the, the high achievers comes in for me, it's uh, imposter syndrome is this kind of nagging feeling that at some point you're going to be exposed as being a fraud that for whatever reason, whatever you're doing or whatever you're engaged in, you aren't connecting to the parts of yourself that make you belong in that space or in that activity. And I kind of phrase it as, you know, it's a spectrum of self-doubt. And, you know, with self-doubt, there's some expectation that when we're starting something new or we're just kind of uh, letting meeting other people or like that, then, you know, that, as you mentioned, maybe even starting a relationship that there's a portion of us that, you know, a part of us that it's appropriate that we aren't sure that it's going to go really well and that we're going to be successful. At some point, though, we would expect that feeling to disappear. And with imposter syndrome, it doesn't. Yeah, it sounds terrifying because we think that the more time we spend with the group and organization and our relationships, then over time we would feel like we belong. And it can, I would imagine that feels scary and daunting to be with someone or an organization for five, 10, 15 years and still feel like you're other or not exactly. a part of. Exactly. You nailed it. That after that amount of time to still wake up on a daily basis and show up as yourself and feel like that's not going to be enough. It's terrifying. It's frustrating. And I think, you know, kind of what my experience would have been or would be is that it has to be exhausting to live like that. You, you mentioned the word uh, or the phrase, not enough. I, I, I never thought about it like that. Like, what is it that we feel like we're not enough of? Or it's, am I even asking the right question? But there's something about that. Because it, it sounds like there's a level of inadequacy. Like I'm, mm -hmm. like I'm not enough. I'm not good enough. I haven't done enough. Like is it is it I haven't I haven't done enough to belong? 
I haven't done enough to feel connected. Like, what is that not enoughness? Oh, it's, it's, oh, it's multi-layered. So I love that question, right? That's a really good question. It's, it's part of it is the idea or the belief or fact that we kind of struggle with perfectionism. And so we want to be all of the things in whatever given activity. So if it's at work, we want to be the best employee or do our jobs to the best of our abilities. Uh, if we're in a relationship, we want to be the best partner. We want to be everything our partner wants in, a, in another partner uh, or in a person. And so it's if we feel like we aren't meeting that or we aren't at that level of perfection or that there's some space or level or room for improvement, then we struggle or we have issue with that. We're saying we aren't doing enough. It's almost like you're perfect or trash. Uh, and I think the other part of it is just not really accepting ourselves. I don't think we live in a society where we are taught to kind of be okay with who we are, that we are kind of social media. You can call it that. You can call it uh, parents pushing us to be, you know, better than the next person's kids. Uh, you know, it can come from all sorts of places, but th there's a, a comparison that exists in our, in our society that prevents us from kind of just accepting ourselves. And so part of kind of, I think what I want to do is try to get people to kind of accept who they are and be okay with that. Well, that sounds like a, a long task because everything on social media is about optimizing and improvement and having a growth mindset. And why would you settle for average? And if you're not growing, you're dying. It, oh. it, we, we really paint these extremes of if, if you're not, you know, shooting for the stars, then, you know, imagine where you're going to be five years from now if you head in this downward trajectory. You're either growing or you're dying. Like that has to be painful and exhausting as you mentioned that that look at the the kind of i guess you know juxtaposition of those two things it's two ends of the spectrum you're you're either perfect or you're trash you're living and growing or you're dying like there's no room for any other possible outcome and that's frustrating to hear it's yeah go ahead go for it. oh i was just gonna say like it's 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 this thing of like we've embraced this idea that if we're this, then we must not be that. Or if we're that, then we must not be this. And I guess my goal is to say, like, why can't both be true? Why can't I be good where I am and also still be working to improve and be better? Because the way it's phrased is, you know, where will you be in five years if you aren't working now is, well, okay, you'll be better. But then in five years, you'll still be saying, where will you be in another five years if you don't continue to do stuff? And so it's, then I will never be good enough and then at some point I'm going to die, never having reached that. And I guess my 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 problem with that then is that you're living a life where, where I guess, where's the happiness? Like, where are you satisfied? Where are you okay with what you've done and, and, and where you've been? Talk to me more about this satisfaction. And I bring this up because I struggle with binge eating, overeating, uh, this idea of, this fear, actually, of, not wanting to be hungry later, this fear of if I don't get it all now, um, you know, I, I might need for it later and it might not be there. And that, that comes from conditioning. And I, I wonder how much of that we then carry over into other areas of our lives, because you mentioned this idea of satisfaction. And I think what scares me about that word is that satisfaction kind of sounds like contentment, kind of sounds like complacency, and kind of sounds like, uh, well, I don't have to 
do anything more. And I think we we really have this fear of feeling satisfied, feeling complacent, feeling uh, content. Like those are those feel scarier than doing, pushing, striving, pursuing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's the I'm I'm real big on language and words have power to me. Words have meaning uh, and they send messages to our brain. So in the, in that it's it's almost like we've adopted this thing where more is better. And we've just agreed that more of something is always good and it's better. Well, maybe to a degree, right? Like I think they that's a half a half, you know, finished picture of the thing. So that like, you know, you could have more money. Also, you could also have more problems. You could have bigger problems, you know, like you could have more pressure. Uh, I don't know that that's always a good thing. I think that like when we're talking about the satisfaction piece and we go to the place of, you know, complacency, then we kind of made this thing of being happy or content or satisfaction a negative thing that for anybody that is okay with where they are, then that person is not really trying to be a good version of themselves. They're not trying to be a better, a better individual. They're not trying to grow and evolve. And I'm saying, what if they got to a place where they're happy with where they are? That is good that, you know, I've got, you got to a place where you have a, a, a nice house. Does that mean that you need to have two houses or you need to have uh, a house that's twice as big? Maybe for some, but if you, for you, all you need is the house that you have, then why couldn't you be okay with that? Why does that have to be negative? And I think that in this society or kind of the world we operate in is that it's not okay for you to be okay, for you to be satisfied with where you are. You're going to be judged negatively. Like, why wouldn't you want more? If you can do more, why not go after more? And I think that's problematic. Yeah, it absolutely is because this idea of limitations and like why limit yourself? Uh, it just sounds uh, r- ridiculous in terms of if you're going by like, you know, what people are putting out there um, and, and social media and these different books and it's like how to break through your self-limiting beliefs. It's like, no, you should actually have limiting beliefs. You should have boundaries around what you um believe and think is possible so that you know we're not flying too close to the sun but everything is break through your limits break through your beliefs or but nowhere are people talking about accept your limits accept your beliefs as if that's um that's a detrimental thing to do yeah like i saw this meme that said you know every <laughs> every every person that died on mount everest was highly motivated so maybe chill uh, <laughs> so it's like you know it, you don't have to you know david goggins your way through life and, and push past everything and you know beat yourself up for wanting to be okay where you are you can you can be happy there and i think that like there's this kind of sentiment of, of judgment, of negative judgment, that if you are satisfied with yourself, something's wrong with you, that either you've set your goals too low and accomplished them, or that you don't have drive and determination or motivation. And I don't know that that's where it needs to be. I don't know that I'm wrong if I'm okay with having one car in one house and that I don't need my car to, you know, cost $250,000. It's Both of those cars are going to get me from point A to point B Hopefully that's, you know, they work and one's going to have less maintenance and cost and stuff like that. Uh, Something else you mentioned earlier was kind of like this fear of if you don't kind of strive or push yourself that you're going to get stuck or stagnant. 
And to me, that feels like scarcity, like how you talked about, like kind of the binge eating or overeating, like, you know, if I don't get it all now, then it'll be gone. And that says then that you or people will often operate in a place of where I guess they feel like the resources are limited or that if if the a good thing has come their way, if they don't seize it now, there will never be another good thing that, you know, if I miss the bus, no more buses are ever going to come, uh, you know, then I will be stuck where I am forever. And I guess I don't live my life in a way that I believe that that's how the world works. Yeah, I know that part of imposter syndrome is the belief of like, I'm not capable of doing this or I'm not as talented as people think. And I think part of that thinking is when we do achieve, because I, I recognize these thoughts of myself, first of all, and and I also recognize that a part of what's feeding that is when I do achieve something or I am rewarded in some type of way or receive recognition that I either attribute it to luck or I attribute it to um, it, it being easy. Um, and And rarely do I really look at the, amount of effort and hard work I put in to getting from A to B. And I, I I wonder if part of that chips away at my feeling of uh feeling capable and feeling talented. Uh this idea of like, oh I was this got lucky. All right, that was easy. A hundred percent it does. Uh as I was mentioning earlier about like the idea that our you know brain receives messages from the narrative we create and what we tell ourselves. If you told yourself that it was luck, then you've removed whatever contribution you've had in your success away from you, that you've given it to other things, that it couldn't be you that made this good thing happen. And so you've disconnected yourself from good. And so your brain learns over time that if good things happen, it can't reward you for it or it can't connect it to you. That's a problem for me. Or if you're saying like, well, it was easy, now I'm like, huh, well, then your definition of success has in it somewhere uh, adversity or hurdles or difficulty. And so for a success to actually count, then you've had to overcome or endure something. And so the way I think about it then is like what you're telling me, I use a ton of sports analogies, is that if for, in order for me to feel good about a shot I made in the game, then I had to have three guys running at me. It had to be a buzzer beater. I had to do a turnaround fade away and then that counted. Whereas like if somebody left me open and I hit that shot, it doesn't matter. You know, it's so funny um, thinking about that, that sports analogy and, and how like ridiculous it sounds of, of what, <laughs> at what point do we have to feel like we earned it? Right. And it's so true. Um, how would we reframe it then? If it's because here's the here's the how, how I grew up where you didn't want to get a big head about anything. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like you, you didn't you didn't want to over celebrate and over and be overjoyed because then people are like, oh, you got a big head. And then they try to knock you down off your peg. Um, so then you kind of defaulted to, oh, well, it was luck. It was easy. So it's kind of like this uh, false humility that actually mm -hmm. comes into play. What's the middle ground there? How how do I frame it in a way where it's not luck, but I'm not like, you know, needing this. I had to, you know, fight the Taliban and, you know, dribble past 20 defenders and dunk from half court. I love it. Exactly. Like, why did you have to do all of that? Uh, it goes to that that 
the, that term and that word again, you know, being humble, we don't want to get a big head. And I think people have like a skewed or kind of, you know, incorrect or inaccurate definition of humility. Uh, humility to me is not refraining from talking about yourself, you know, less. It's more of not treating people less than because of like what you've accomplished. You know, so like I don't want people to refrain from talking about their accomplishments. I want people to not treat people less than because of all the things they've accomplished. So the middle ground, when you ask that, I, I go, I'm a you know practical, logical, rational person, I believe. Uh, and I like objective things. I think facts are facts and you can't really uh, kind of dispute that. So again, sports analogy, if I scored 40 points, that's just a fact. That's in the stat sheet. I made enough baskets. So that's what the point total added up to. If I talk about that, you're saying that's wrong to do. And I guess I push back and say, well, why is that wrong? That's just what happened. I'm not saying I'm the best player ever and everybody else sucks. I'm not saying that if you didn't score 40, 40 points, you aren't a good player. I'm just talking about what I did. And I don't know that that's absolutely or necessarily a bad thing. And so that's the middle ground for me. I'm saying people can be mad about you talking about what you did. But if you did those things, I don't know that that's a bad thing. I you know, graduated from college. That's just what it is. I don't say that I'm better than people who didn't graduate from college or because I did that I'm better than them and they're not as good as I am. That's just what I did. And I think if people have an issue, that's a them problem and not a you problem. And I hope people would like let people be responsible for their own issues and not take them on. Yeah, I think Kanye West would agree with you for sure. Don't go full uh, <laughs> Kanye, though. Don't, don't go full Kanye. <laughs> I'm not saying go full Kanye. He, you know, broken clock is right twice a day. <laughs> You know what I was shocked by? I read an article about Oprah Winfrey. She apparently she has another book coming out. She probably puts one out uh, once a year. But she says that she never struggled with imposter syndrome. As a matter of fact, she had to look it up. And part of that was as a child, she would win a number of uh, oral speech uh, competitions. And afterwards, her dad would be like, you did good, go get your coat. And and Oprah had always noticed that for the other girls or other uh, competitors who won or who maybe placed, their parents would be like, you did great. And then there would be this like big celebration. They would go out to eat afterwards or or whatever. But for her dad, it was, you did good, go get your coat. And so Oprah kind of just grew up with this, don't let your head get too big but also don't be humble or, you know, don't be too um, self-effacing. It's just, you did good. Go get your coat. Like, all right, let's, let's keep it moving. And, um, and so she never experienced imposter syndrome. So how much of is from that article, what I take is a part of imposter syndrome, please correct me uh, if you feel like it's inaccurate. um, Is this, linked to some kind of grandiosity or high expectation of how of 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 one perceives uh perceived capabilities and then also of like how people should treat us uh as a result of what we've accomplished or not accomplished yes so it is it is kind of based on the the fear of like external kind of judgment based on how you performed or how you, you know, kind of conducted yourself or what you've accomplished. And so there, there is this fear of 
kind of disappointing people that believe that you had this thing that you don't really feel connected or feel like you do have. And, and there's this fear that you live with of being found out tonight, not really be in possession of it, which results in really just like you're, you're saying is that people are worried about, I guess, the external validation and not, not receiving it uh, for a thing. I guess the part that I, the research might not kind of support in, in Oprah's, uh, you know, kind of analogy or, or story is that it's, her dad kind of normalizing or just kind of maybe even minimizing to a degree uh, hasn't proven to actually be helpful in reducing imposter syndrome. It's actually the opposite that like when we don't get praise from parents or, you know, we do something and it's not really kind of celebrated or acknowledged. And the only time we do get some kind of acknowledgement is like we, we were perfect or we did something super amazing. Like, Oh, we graduated college. What's well, like, you're only going to do that a handful of times in life then everything else is kind of subpar. And it, it goes back to me talking about, you know, the messages our brain gets. Uh, so when parents operate like that, it makes people less sure of kind of where they stand or where they are in terms of, you know, how they're functioning in life. And so it's interesting that her takeaway was that I'm good. I know what I can do and I'm just fine. And, you know, business as usual. Whereas like for most people, it's not that it's like, well, you know, good job. Was it a good job? Like, you know, I, is it a good job if I did better than everyone else? You know, that that seems like I did an amazing job, but I guess if the expectation is that I'm going to always do better than everybody else, then so be it. But what happens then if I don't? And then that becomes a concern. And so now am I living with the fear of that? And I'm surprised that Oprah did not, you know, kind of <laughs> come up from a place where, you know, that turned into her kind of not being sure of herself. It did the exact opposite. Yeah, I, I kind of I was surprised also. I, I I would wonder, you know, because she is promoting a book, if if we're not getting the full story and if we dug a little deeper, uh we'd become more aware of of uh links to imposter syndrome or something else where maybe her brain really did just work like that, where it was kind of like, oh, okay, just get my coat. Because there is something about, um, I know in Eastern like philosophy, there's this idea of like chop wood, carry water, where it's like, no matter how, how much you've accomplished today, no matter what you've done today, tomorrow, you got to get up, chop wood, carry water. No matter how, how much you did or how little you did, tomorrow we're going to get up and chop wood and carry water. And it, it sounds like, for Oprah, that was her chop wood carry water of, yeah, you did good, get your coat. Uh, you know, there's there's still more to do. Um, and and I also would be curious to know, like, if they did celebrate in some kind of way. Maybe there wasn't a celebration after every, um, you know, every time she'd had a tournament, but maybe like periodic celebrations or you know what I mean, like. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, yeah, I, I definitely would want to know. I, there's, I think it was like only three paragraphs the story. So I, yeah, that's, that's really opened up more questions. Um, so we've talked about what imposter syndrome is, and given gave a few examples. How do we make imposter? Well, let me before I ask this, how does imposter syndrome show up in relationships? Because I know that you're you also uh, work with couples specifically. You work with couples in their first year of marriage 
But how do you see imposter syndrome showing up in relationships and, and how is it impacted in that arena? Yeah, so I think it's kind of similar. Uh, I need to update some of that. I, you know, I used to work with couples. I stopped working with couples, uh, but I did for a long time. So it's, it's absolutely on par, have, have tons of experience in it. Um, I think it's the, it shows up in a similar way, but it, it, it becomes specific to the person or individual feeling like they are a good enough partner or a complete partner. And so a lot of times what will happen is that you will see one partner, the one that's struggling with kind of, are they enough for the other person, kind of questioning whether they are meeting the needs of the other individual, reading into behavior as, you know, more negatively skewed towards them. So that, you know, if person, if their partner say, you know, doesn't, say thank you one time, then what does that mean? Or if their partner doesn't, you know, feel overjoyed, uh, what does that mean? If if their partner doesn't like the food they cooked that day or the gift they bought them, is that me not meeting their needs? And so they're looking for instances of when they're failing and ignoring all the stuff that's not being said or done that supports that they are doing a good job. The fact that this person is continuing to be in a relationship with you. The fact that they, you know, you guys have a, a life together and have been in a relationship for X amount of years or months or whatever. Uh, all of that stuff gets dismissed and we're only looking for, are there complaints? Uh, is this other person happy? And sometimes what you'll find is that even if the person says, hey, I am satisfied. I love you. You meet my needs. I don't want anything more from you. The person will not believe it because they don't themselves think they're enough for the other individual. And it's really, again, about self, right? Like they don't think that they are enough for what this person is. And some of that may be putting their partner on a pedestal that I think this person's so great. They definitely deserve the best ever. I know I'm imperfect. Why would they be with me? And it's it's just nonsense. It's not anything that's really based in, in fact or in evidence or reality. So how do you, how do they address that thought process? This idea of Oh, my partner uh, is is perfect. They belong on a pedestal. That they're a, a prince or a princess, um, and I'm but a humble servant or a peasant. <laughs> you know, <laughs> where, where do where do they begin with that conversation? Is it something that they that the person needs to address within themselves, or is that something that they would it be like? Would they sit their partner down and say, "Hey, you know, I love you. I hear you saying you love me." But when you don't say thank you or show joy when I share something with you, it makes me feel like you're going to leave me. Like what what would the conversation be like or where do they start? Uh, it's both and. It's all of those things. It's one, doing some work on yourself to to say that I'm enough and to also kind of humanize, you know, their partner that nobody's perfect. So your partner can't be a perfect princess or prince. That's not true. That's impossible because nobody's perfect. So let's, you know, not knock them down a bit, but let's let's make them human, you know, and not not a God. Uh, the second thing is then also, yeah, having conversations with your partner about that stuff. So, hey, here's when I feel most connected to you. Here's when I, you know, know that you are happy with me or X. And also having people explain their behavior so that if you see a behavior in your partner that makes you feel like they are dissatisfied with you or disconnected from you, if you've not asked that person if that's what that meant or that's how they felt, then you're making stuff up about them. 
And I'm not a fan of making up a narrative and operating like it's true. If you haven't checked that out to confirm. Uh, that, that's beautiful. So how do we make imposter syndrome work for us? Like I, I, I've read articles where they, you know, the headline is like, here are the benefits of imposter syndrome. <laughs> what are some of the, what's some of the upside of having or struggling with imposter syndrome? Uh, I've not found it yet. Uh, I've seen those same articles. I know that they exist. I know that people are out there. I think it's a good sound bite, and I think it's you know clickbait. But I've not seen any benefit to it. I do think that there is an outward reward, uh, but internally to the individual, it, I don't think there's a benefit. And, and I'll explain what I mean. So, imposter syndrome creates in us again this fear of being found out to be a fraud. And so, what people do to try to cover it up are engaged in behaviors that get rewarded, right? So it's if I'm worried at work that, you know, they're going to find out I'm going to be a fraud, then I'm going to check emails, double check emails. I'm going to always be available. I'm going to stay late. I'm going to do all the things to try to, you know, mask that. Those behaviors get rewarded. People are like, oh, they're a wonderful employee. They're go the extra mile. They do all these things. It's coming from a negative place, a place of fear in a relationship. It's, oh, my partner's always there. They're thinking for me. They you know, do things before I can even ask. Again, that stuff gets rewarded. But internally, that person is in chaos. They are living in fear. And to me, living in fear of something bad happening, I don't think that that's a benefit. Yeah, living in fear of something bad happening is not a benefit. And so when we look at the... uh let me rephrase this question. I've heard other people reframe the word imposter syndrome. Do you feel like there's a, a, another reframe for imposter syndrome? In terms of like, is there another Just way to... So for instance, some people like, um, I, like I'm in sugar and carbs. Uh, I, I'm in a sugar and carb uh, addiction group. Mm -hmm. And when I first joined, people would say, you know, here's my, you know, here's my name. I'm a sugar and carb addict. And some people have reframed it from a place of identity of saying I'm a sugar and carb addict mm -hmm. to saying, um, hi, I'm such and such. I value clarity and, and connectivity as opposed to saying I'm a sugar and carb addict. Is there a reframe for, I struggle with imposter syndrome that might be more forward thinking or empowering because the, the imposter syndrome is to me kind of the, the symptom or the, the, the thing on the surface. But I guess if they were to reframe it, what would they really be struggling with? Or sure. not struggling with, but, but wanting not, not necessarily struggling with, but what is it that they really, want versus stating it in a way that uh, is the thing that they're afraid of? Uh, I'll follow. I'll follow for sure. I would say then that the reframe for imposter syndrome would be, I would say that someone is working towards radical acceptance of self. And so the idea, and this is kind of, you know, my own belief about the kind of, I guess, you know, antidote to imposter syndrome is people getting to a place of radically accepting themselves. And when I say radically accepting themselves, the radical part is 
being able to hold two truths in, I guess, in in uh, at the same time. So it's saying, hey, I am not perfect. I have some flaws and I am working towards improving those. And at the same time, while I know that those flaws exist and that I am not perfect, I am still a good person. I still do these things well, and I still am happy with myself. And I think holding those two truths at the same time is difficult for some people because of this, you know, dichotomous world we live in of the, if you're this, then you're that, or if you're not doing this, then you must be doing that. I'm saying when you get to a place of radical acceptance itself, you aren't so pressed about the fact that you're imperfect. You're like, yeah, I've accepted that already. And I know I'm going to make mistakes. And I know that I have these flaws and I carry this stuff. That doesn't make me a fraud. That doesn't make me less than. It doesn't make me a bad person. It just says I'm human and I'm still good. And I can be happy with myself and I can be proud of myself and I can be all the good things, even though, you know, sometimes I might eat a little too many carbs or sometimes I uh, might have too much to drink or sometimes I spend more money than I might like to or I haven't kind of, you know, gotten to the senior level in my job or I'm not married. None of that stuff is going to define you. And so we don't define ourselves by our flaws. And I think that's what radical acceptance of self is. And that's what people are trying to work towards. This whole idea of improving self, it, it brings to mind when people want to improve their house. Mm-hmm. And typically they'll go, I, I just want to improve the kitchen. And so they put all this money in, they improve the kitchen. But now they go, well, the living room doesn't go with the kitchen. So now do we have to improve the living room? And then they do the living room. And then they go, well, now the hallway or the foyer doesn't go with the... And so it becomes this slow, yes, improvement of the house. And then maybe you make it through the entire house. And then you go, okay, well, now this the front door, we have to change that. The landscape has to be changed. But with all these different improvements present new challenges, right? Because as you are improving, you're inviting in construction, you're inviting in, um, you know, a bit of chaos, maybe the neighbors are upset. Um, and so my question is, is there, are we really improving and moving forward or are we really just exposing layers of ourselves because as i I, i'm I'm taking my addiction for example i know this is a a long way to get to it but um as i'm addressing the addiction to sugar i'm now becoming aware of other areas that need to be worked on so this idea of like i so i had the idea initially of like i'm improving myself but what I'm learning is that I'm really uh, going back to what we thought with inspo- imposter syndrome. I'm exposing other layers, other challenges, other things that need to be worked on that wasn't visible under the veil of my addiction. And I, I wonder for someone who then is working with imposter syndrome, is there also a fear of, okay, I'm, I'm comfortable with having imposter syndrome. And I'm afraid if I work on that and, and, but then what else will I discover under there? It's kind of like, I don't want to look up under that rock. Oh yeah. I think that's why people will avoid therapy or do all the things. Like once you peel 
you know, take, peel back the curtain, and then like what's what's actually back there? You know, it's, if you open up a wall in a house, uh, you know, is there mold in there? Is the wood rotted? All sorts of things. And, and I wasn't ready to deal with that. I guess part of me also then thinks about like this need to improve. Uh, even that word need says that if you're not improving, then you're doing something wrong. Because it says, you know, if you need to do it, then you should be doing it. And there's a demand there. And I guess, you know, with my thoughts about radical acceptance itself, if we change that statement to, oh, I recognize some areas I could improve, then that gives us opportunity to say, well, you can do it or, or not. You know, you can do the kitchen and leave the living room alone. There's no law that says that, that you have to do both. The You can leave the kitchen how it is. And you can be like, oh, it's outdated. But if it works for you, what does it matter? And I think that what happens is that it's this underlying perfectionism that people are kind of chasing and they aren't aware of it, that they are engaging in behaviors that seem like, you know, we'll label them as, you know, I'm just trying to be better or I'm trying to, you know, improve. And what you're really saying is you're trying to be perfect. And I think your brain recognizes the sentiment and, you know, we'll dismiss the word, right? And so what happens then is that you're saying you just want it to be a better house or you're just trying to make some improvements or some upgrades. And what you're really saying is you're trying to make your house perfect, that the landscaping isn't perfect. The front door isn't perfect. The kitchen isn't perfect. The living room isn't. And then it's like, okay, you get all that done. And this is where you're talking about, well, what's the, the fear? Because like my identity was, you know, I improve houses. What happens when your house gets perfect? Then you're going to start to look for things, right? Now, are we saying, well, yeah, and it took me this long to get it. That was 10 years ago. It's all outdated. And it's like, okay, we're never going to be satisfied. And so like, that's my fear is that when you start to say, I need to do these things, then will that need ever die? And I would hope that people would kind of temper that, uh, kind of how you were saying earlier, it, you know, temper that statement to be like, you know, I could improve these things. And then you get to decide which ones you want to do. And you don't have to be defined by, you know, what's behind the curtain because you may attend to it or not. And you don't have to be fearful about that stuff. And I think that's the thing of like, oh, I don't want to peel back the layers because I have to attend to it. I have to do something about that. And maybe I'm not ready. And it's like, no, you can look at it and you can close that wall right back up. I love, I love that you highlighted that word need. Wow. That, that really connected and resonated with me. Uh, because, and then you also talked about how it's like, I could make these changes. So then it's a, a way of acknowledging I'm making a choice and I have power in the situation mm -hmm. versus need is kind of like sounds like driven by an unconscious uh drive that we really aren't aware of or like we're we're out of control it's like i need you it's like yeah no i that you're supposed to have it because then if it doesn't happen then that's bad that's unpleasant that's not good and you know if you're like me hopefully you're not because you're a much better person than i am uh you know when you take your car to get service they give you a list of stuff you could do I get that oil change and leave not <laughs> any of that stuff. But if I say I need to do all these things, then all right, I went there for the you know fifty dollar oil change, and now I've spent six hundred and eighty bucks <laughs> because I needed to get all that stuff done. You know, maybe I didn't need to change out the washer fluid. You know, I, I'll be all right. <laughs> uh, I, yeah, that's a great analogy of like there are things that you need to do and there are things that you could do, right? Like. Right. You could get the, you know, 20 inch rims or, you know, you could there you get go. the 
the the off uh uh I, I, I you know whatever the the souped up package or, or what mm-hmm. I don't know anything about cars clearly. <laughs> The, uh, <laughs> yeah, you get the special exhaust, the leather interior, you know, the moon roof, all the bells and whistles. Or you can get the car that works. Like, that's all right. You know, <laughs> I, get, I needed that oil change. I don't know that I actually needed to get the cabin filter done. That's so funny. And and I and I also appreciate you highlighting the fact that if if it's need-based, then it's really never gonna be uh fulfilled versus uh I could have this in making a choice. Right. What what got you into this work? What what did you struggle with imposter syndrome? Was there, um, and I know you didn't start there. You started off with um, couples therapy. Was there a question or something you were curious about that got you into this line of work? Yes, two things. So first, like you said, I was working with couples, and then I started kind of doing an analysis of of my clients and. The ones that I really felt like, man, we do some really good work and I have fun with them were people that, you know, kind of had this set of like a similar history, I'll say, and experiences and kind of the way they showed up in the world. I was like, they're doing these amazing things, but they have a lot of self-doubt. And so I started doing research on that. And this is like back in 2017, I think. Uh, And so I realized like I wasn't exposed to imposter syndrome. I hadn't heard the term before. And I did some research and found it. And I was like, oh, wow, like there's a name for this stuff. And I was like, these are my folks. I only want to work with them because we can do amazing stuff. I seem to understand them and we make it happen. The other thing was that it was the reason I was so attracted to this kind of or fascinated by like this this presentation was that I didn't think like that. So like for me, you know, in kind of, I guess, mirroring a bit of, I guess, Oprah's experience, like, you know, I got bust out to a school where, you know, I was like one of like a handful of like black people there in elementary. and I realized early on, like this is like, you know, eight years old, that the rules were going to be different for me. And so what I could do and you know, I thank God for my gifts and understandings or the universe for kind of, you know, endowing me with the ability to make this assessment at such a young age was that I could try to be like what they might want from me, or I could just choose to be me. And so the thing that I did was choose to be me. Like I knew early on that I was intelligent. And so what I was like, well, you can't take these grades away from me. You can get me for talking out of, you know, talking during class and being disruptive. And you can give me unsatisfactory there, but I still got this A. And so that's how I just kind of chose to operate. And so I was like, screw everybody else. If I'm going to be okay with it, why do I care? And so I would bring home these report cards that like, you know, Dean's List or like made all the A's. I was on the honor roll, but it like talks too much, you know, does this, is disruptive, jokes around a lot. And it's like, okay, but... I got a 98 on the geometry. Like that's what really matters. So I could care less about all this other thing. And so it, 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 I never understood why people wouldn't just attach to like, Hey, you know, you did this thing good. Why do you care? Like what else is happening? It just like the evidence is there and people don't use evidence. <laughs> people don't use evidence. <laughs> they don't. Um, <laughs> it, it, for, all right. So to, to summarize for someone struggling with imposter syndrome, are there three things or two things, or do you have an acronym of uh, or something that that they can they can uh, take away from this conversation to, mm-hmm, to get started? Yeah, first thing I would say is if you don't do anything else, pay attention to your language. Look at how you are describing your situation, how you're describing what you do, 
Are you minimizing? Are you downplaying? Are you distancing yourself from the good that you are involved in in your life? Are you attributing it to other factors other than yourself? Uh, are you more unfavorable about the things you do than the things that other people do? Uh, are you only paying attention to the negative? Like your language says that. So like when you say I suck, are you just saying I didn't do well this time and I'm going to you know, work to improve? Or are you really telling yourself that you're no good at any of this stuff? And does your brain know the difference? After you do language, then I would say start. And, you know, I created a, a, a journal. Uh, it's called the Acknowledgement Journal, Silencing Your Inner Bully. Uh, and so the idea is for you to start to document uh, your success, the good. You spend a lot of time thinking about where you can improve. How much time do you spend thinking about where you're doing things well already? Unless you're saying all you have to do is improve. You aren't doing anything good, which I don't believe. Uh, so then it's like you're spending all this time thinking about where you aren't doing well, and you're wondering why you don't feel like you're accomplishing anything or you're doing anything of value. Well, you've not ever looked at any of the stuff that you are doing that's of value or that is positive or good. Start a gratitude journal or, you know, start recording or documenting that stuff and looking it over frequently, periodically. Uh, and then the last thing would kind of just be making sure that you give yourself some compassion. Like, you know, you look for the evidence in life that you're doing these things and whether or not you feel like, you know, it was luck or whatever, something must be true. You keep being involved in these things that are good. So whether you know what you're doing or not you're involved in good things, you can start there. You can say that much at least, like we can't refute that. Uh, and if it is luck, then you're one of the luckiest people in the world. And so you should be confident in that, that like, I'm really lucky. So I don't need to be so concerned about being found out to be a fraud. My luck is so good that that wouldn't happen. And so I think kind of you got to attach to some of the good and look at some of the evidence that's in your life is that if you're consistently in places where you know people want to elevate you and they want to call on you to do good things, I think we live in a world where people, you know, we could say people are gassing people up, but I don't buy it. I think that people can't wait to, you know, call somebody out for not being who they said they were. And if you're routinely not in that group and people are saying, hey, you do this good, you know, so it's okay to own it. I love those tips. Thank you so much, uh, Stevon. Uh, last two questions. I always imagine there's, well, before I even say that, where can people reach out to you if they want to work with you? Oh, for sure. Uh, so I make it easy. You know, I mean, if you Google Stevon Lewis, S-T-E-V-O-N, uh, all my stuff comes up. So I have a unique name. I'm going to use that for good. Thank Black Mom uh, for <laughs> looking out for your boy. Uh, but yeah, everything's there. Uh, I'm most active on social media on Instagram. I'm at Stevon Lewis, MFT. Uh, the letters Mary Francis Thomas. Uh, you know, you can find me there. And then my website has all the stuff. My podcast, How to Talk to High Achievers About Anything is available wherever you listen to your podcast, uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, Google Podcasts. And also I have my journal, uh, and it's a Silencing Your Inability, an acknowledgement journal for imposter syndrome. And it's filled with activities and uh, opportunities to like kind of write and writing prompts and stuff like that for you to really work through uh, you know, your imposterism and, you know, it's designed after what I would do with somebody I was working with individually. All right. That's dope. Uh, penultimate question. Always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of wanting to end their life before you kill yourself. What would you say to them? Steven? Oof. Um, that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a question I wasn't ready for. Uh, but now we are, uh, before you end your life, 
give yourself the opportunity for somebody to show up for you or for you to be made aware of the impact you have on someone else. Beautiful. And what are you looking forward to in the next 24 hours? The next 24 hours, I am looking forward to, uh, I have a client tomorrow and then after that I'll be free. So I'm going to hopefully get out and ride my bike. I love it. Thank yeah. you so much, Stevon. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for you calling the 988 or any of the 800 numbers listed in all the show notes. You can chat, talk, text. You can go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks a lot, Stevon. Thanks, Leo. Appreciate it.